If you, uh, you've just joined us for the first time today, we're actually in the middle of uh, what maybe you feel like a mini-series mini called Summer in the Psalms. And last week, Patrick uh, took us into Psalm 62 and asked us the question, who do you trust? So this morning, we're going to look at the topic of worship. And I want to start out by telling you about one of the most profound experiences of worship, profound moments of worship that I have ever had. It's not where you might expect it to have been. <clears throat> I was on a trip from Dubai down to South Africa, and I was traveling via Rwanda. Now, Donnie had gone ahead of me, and she said, look, uh, make sure you bring US dollars, because you're going to want to have a cup of coffee in the airport. Well, guess who forgot to bring their US dollars? And so I get there. It's been an eight-hour overnight flight, and I land in Kigali Airport, and there's the cafe, and it's open. I've got a five-hour layover ahead of me, and I am ready for a cup of coffee. It is that time of the day. It's like, yes. And I go up there, and I went, oh, no, US dollars. And so I go up to the guys, do you take card? Can I pay by card? Yes, I'm sorry, sir, my, my machine's not working today. Can we try it? Yeah, yeah, we can try it. Try it twice, three times. It just would not work. I have no money, no way of paying. I really would love a cup of coffee. Now, I don't know if you've heard about um, coffee, if uh, you're interest, interested in this kind of thing, but Rwanda has some particularly good beans. So I'm thinking, oh, come on, this is my opportunity. I want to try some Rwandan coffee. And so I, I go over to the duty-free shop, and there's a lady that I said, look, I, I just don't have any money, and I want to buy a cup of coffee over here. Can I buy something from you, and then you charge me extra and give me the cash, you know, like FPOS? Uh, we do that in Australia. He goes, no, sir, I can't do that. I'm sorry. I'm like, oh, no. So I, I go and sit down, and after a couple of hours, this lady from the duty-free shop checks off duty. She's done, and she walks over to me, and she gives me just enough money for a cup of coffee. I uh, like, oh, you are awesome. Thank you so much. What's your name? Grace. Yeah, that fits. <laughs> that fits. And so I go over excitedly and I buy my cup of coffee. And there I am and I sit down and I drink my cup of coffee. Now, I don't know if you are familiar with this quote, but C.S. Lewis once wrote about seeing a beam of sunlight streaming into his tool shed. And he explains, as he reflects on this beam of sunlight, he explains the difference between gratitude and adoration. Gratitude exclaims, he says, how good of God to give me this. Adoration says, what must be the quality of that being whose far-off and momentary coruscations are like this? One's mind runs back up the sunbeam to the sun. As I drank that cup of coffee, oh, it was a moment of worship. I was beholding the glory of God in this coffee. What kind of benevolent, creative and sovereign being could so orchestrate the volcanic soil that the beans had grown in and to tend and cultivate them with rain and just the right temperature so they grew in a way that when roasted, 
ground and pressed, produced this amazing cup of coffee. And more than that, that he so created my tongue in such a way as this warm liquid passes over my taste receptors, they transferred impulses to my brain which evaluated the taste and recognized this is like none other. (laughs) And resulted in pleasure and joy. Oh Lord, you are so good. You are so incredible. You must be amazing. It was a moment of real worship. So why wasn't my Sunday mornings like that? Why wasn't the corporate gathering of God's people for me a time of exceeding joy? What was I missing? I'd grown up in the Uniting Church. People didn't raise their hands. Uh, In fact, people didn't really sing very much either. I, I visited my high school music teacher's church and was just amazed by the, the excellent band and the passion and exuberance with which people sang, but recognized that their songs just didn't really seem to say, say much. There was such strong emotions, but their songs seemed to lack any real substance. And then I visited another friend's church, and the songs were rich theologically. And it's just a lot of substance, but the, I looked around and the people singing just seemed to lack joy. Like, what's going on here? And I remember distinctly sitting in a Pentecostal service in 2002 in Muscat, Oman. And I'm surrounded by people yelling and shouting and clapping and singing their hearts out. And I was just sitting there with my eyes closed, praying, saying, Lord, What am I missing here? Why am I not feeling even remotely excited? You know, it wasn't until 2005, three years later, that the Lord would start to answer that question for me. That was the year that I met Bob Coughlin. Bob was different from the other music people I'd I'd grown up and around. See, because the Lord had given Bob the clarity to articulate what was missing not just in my experience of church, but in a lot of churches. It was the gospel. The gospel is the true motivation to worship. It's the fuel that fires expression. It's the lens that magnifies his greatness, the grace that destroys all boasting, and the power that overcomes sin. It's the treasure that brings great joy. You see... I'd been looking at the wrong thing. I'd been looking at the sunbeam rather than the sun. I'd been looking at the outward expressions rather than the inward reality that produced those expressions. And of course, there's going to be different differences in those people's expressions because people are looking at different things. But you see, Bob wasn't the first guy to work this out. There's another guy who came before Bob a few years His name's King David. So I wanted to look with you this morning at Psalm 34. So if you have your Bibles with you, I encourage you to open up uh, to Psalm 34. And as you do, I want to say up front that while most of what we're going to talk about this morning will find its framework in Psalm 34, 
this morning is not intended to be an exposition of Psalm 34. Rather, I'm wanting to look at Psalm 34 and meditate on what it says to us about the issue of worship and in particular expressiveness in corporate worship. So let's read Psalm 34 of David when he changed his behaviour before Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went away. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. O magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. Those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. If you're looking for a title uh, for this morning's sermon, it is the question, what are you looking at? What are you looking at? And to organize uh, our thoughts, I've given us three points. First one is beholding, then tasting, and responding. Beholding, tasting, and responding. Now, like all true worship songs, Psalm 34 has not been written in a vacuum. It is born out of the the mess and the mud of real life. And David's life was in a bit of a mess. Things weren't working out quite as you might think they would. One day, he's happily shepherding his father's sheep, and the next day, the prophet Samuel comes along and anoints him to be the next king over Israel. But instead of a glorious ascension to the throne, King Saul is throwing spears at him. Even though David had killed Goliath and was defeating loads and loads of Philistines, Saul had a bounty on his head. And so in 1 Samuel 21, we read that David is running for his life. And he runs right into enemy territory. 
Not surprisingly, they recognize him. This is David. It's the one that they'd written the song about. Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. It's like he'd wandered straight into a hornet's nest. He was surrounded with no obvious way out. And David uses his wits and he pretends to be insane. And amazingly, Abimelech, the Philistine king of Gath, says, Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? And he sends David away. And David runs away and he escapes to the cave of Adullam. Now, you can imagine, David is sitting in this cave and he is processing what just happened. And there's two ways that he could have processed it. Either he could have thought, man, I'm awesome. I mean, that, that was pretty, pretty impressive acting back there. I even had the spit running down my beard. It totally fooled him. Or, rather than looking at his actions, he could look at who really saved him. And that's what he does. I mean, look at verse 2. He goes, My soul makes its boast, not in himself, but in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. In verse 4, I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. It's the Lord that had delivered David and he recognized it. He knew that his situation was actually impossible and he knew that even though he had used his wits and he pretended to be insane, it wasn't his acting skills that had saved him. It was the Lord. David was looking to the Lord. So verse 5 says this, Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. The question then is this, how do we see God? What kind of looking are we talking about here? Well, When the Bible speaks about looking, not just in this passage, but others, it's usually referring to a looking of the heart. So our physical eyes see, but our hearts look. And it's a looking in a, in a way that looks with faith. It looks to something, for something. So in Ephesians 1 verse 18, Paul talks about having the eyes of our hearts enlightened to know the hope and the riches and the power of the gospel. It's to look at something in a way that changes us. And in, in, in this case, to gaze upon the Lord and more specifically his saving work that brings hope and joy and results in our lives being changed. So Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. That word beholding, I think, really captures this idea, the kind of looking that we're talking about, that David is doing in Psalm 34. And that word beholding into Corinthians is translated, uh, it, it carries the idea of reflecting or imaging back. We reflect what we behold. It's actually a theme that you can trace right throughout Scripture. So Adam and Eve are made in God's image. 
They are designed to reflect God, to behold him and to worship him. And they beheld God in the glory of the Lord in the garden and they delighted him in him all the time. Life in the garden with God was awesome. The problems came when they stopped beholding the Lord. Sin entered the world because they beheld the idea of living for their own glory. Instead of beholding the Lord, they beheld or looked to themselves, thinking that they could be like God. The eyes of their hearts shifted away from gazing on the Lord's beauty, and so they no longer reflected his beauty. Instead, sinful beholding of idols and self-glory brought about a disfigured and ugly mankind that was filled with all kinds of covetous and pride and murder. And because we are changed by what we behold, our hearts were corrupted and became deceitful, so deceitful that they even deceive ourselves. And so Jeremiah 17 verse 9 says that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? We don't even understand ourselves. And then Romans 3, verse 10 says, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So in our sinful rejection of God's glories, humans not only can't see his glory, but they don't want to either. And so our hearts are wandering from one thing to another, looking, beholding, worshipping and reflecting whatever we think will satisfy us. But praise be to God that he didn't leave us there. Because the Lord wanted us to see his glory. So in Isaiah 60, the Lord promises that a light would come. Isaiah 60 verse 5 says, When that light comes, then you shall see and be radiant. That sounds like Psalm 34, doesn't it? Your heart shall thrill and exult. And so when Jesus came in John John 8 verse 12, he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. He came and he says, I'm the one fulfilling that prophecy of Isaiah 60. I am the light. And so then Paul says to Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. How can a sinful people who have rejected God see him once again? It's through the sovereign and gracious act of our Lord speaking into our hearts and opening our eyes to behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. To see the glory of the Lord's salvation. That our hearts might not boast in ourselves But as David puts it in Psalm 34, to make our boast in the Lord. That's what he's done for us. It's amazing. He's opened our eyes that we might behold and know his grace and his mercy and his forgiveness in the cross. 
And so as we look upon the cross in faith, we see that and we behold it and we know it. And that in Christ, we might see again and again by looking and beholding him the extent of his kindness and his steadfast love, even as we've been singing this morning. And that we might gaze upon the resurrection and to know the power that he has won over sin in a way that we behold that power and it changes the way that we live. And we look not to this world, but to the hope of Christ's return, where we will behold him, not, not in part, but in full. We look forward to that day when we will join with a great multitude that no one can number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne of God and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes. And with palm branches in our hands, we will cry aloud with everyone else, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. When we behold him, that, that is when we set our hearts on the glory of God in the gospel, our hearts thrill and exult. Those who look to him are radiant because we reflect what we behold. So as a church then, as each time we gather, that's what we do. We do it because that's where the hope is. That's where the joy is. That's where the treasure is. And we do it because that's what we're going to be doing for the rest of eternity, is beholding the Lord in his glory and delighting in him. And so Brian Chappell says in his book, Christ-Centered Worship, Letting the Gospel Shape Our Practice, he says, corporate worship is nothing more and nothing less than a representation of the gospel in the presence of God and his people for his glory and their good. It is for his glory that we remember the gospel, but it's also for our good. And we delight in it. You know, one of the reasons that we sing in particular is because the truths that we've come to see, the things that the Lord has opened us, our eyes to, and have changed us, are just too great to merely speak or recite, they must be sung. And so John Piper says this, the reality of God and Christ and creation and salvation and heaven and hell are simply too great for mere speaking. They must be sung. So when it comes time for corporate worship, when we gather together on a Sunday, it's not firstly a question then of am I an expressive kind of person or not? Or do I feel like being expressive or not? Rather, the first question that we need to be asking ourselves is, what am I looking at this morning? What am I beholding through faith with my heart? What am I hoping will satisfy me? What am I looking for joy and delight in? Because we reflect what we behold. So some questions to ask yourself. What do my expressions reflect? What do my actions tell others about what I value the most? 
Do my expressions on a Sunday morning truly communicate what I say is most important to me? Do my actions and my words line up? What we reflect, uh, we reflect, sorry, what we behold. Psalm, but Psalm 34 is not only speaking to us about beholding. David also invites us to taste. And that's our second point, tasting. Now, can you imagine that the Rwandan barista had brought me my cup of coffee? Imagine what he would think if he just put it down in front of me and I just sat there staring at the coffee. How weird would that be? I mean, to state the obvious, looking at a cup of coffee is not the same as drinking it, right? Now, the barista could have, uh, he could have told me what it's like. He could have sat down with me and he said, well, Glenn, this single origin bean comes with hints of orange blossom and lemon. The volcanic soil of the Rwandan Alps have produced a floral bouquet mixed with a fruity red currant and berry flavour. The aftertaste is rich caramel and white chocolate overtones, <laughs> leaving a satisfying creaminess on the palate. I mean, that does sound good, doesn't it? Uh, but unless I reach out with my hands, pick up the cup, put it to my mouth and drink it, it remains head knowledge. In order to benefit and experience the joy and the taste of that Rwandan coffee, I must taste it for myself. And that's why David says in Psalm 34, verse 8, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. He's not content with merely telling us intellectual truth about who God is and what he has done. David wants us to know it experientially, just like he has. He wants us to know and delight in the salvation of the Lord. Now, David's experience of salvation is from the physical hand of his enemies. But how much greater a salvation have we experienced in Christ? We've come to taste the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. But as weird as it is, many times we come to church on a Sunday morning and figuratively speaking, just stare at the coffee. Outwardly, we're holding the coffee. It's keeping our hands warm. I mean, it's nice to hold a warm cup, you know, to be part of a warm community of people. We stand up and maybe sing a bit, but the taste is nowhere near our lips. Our hearts are hardly thrilled or exulting. The goodness of the gospel seems like the faint memory of a meal we once had. Why is that? You know, it's not just some of us. I think all of us go through this at various times. In fact, I think it's a battle just about every single Sunday morning for me to set my gaze properly on Christ and a taste of his love and experience his grace. Now, let me be clear. What I'm not saying is that we should expect every single Sunday morning to be a mountaintop experience of euphoria. But if the gospel is really true, 
And we are really beholding the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That is, we are beholding the glory of God in the gospel. Then it would be weird for us to merely recite accurate theology, listen to a nice message, and then go home unchanged. Beholding leads to tasting. Let me explain. A song that has helped me on more than one occasion to taste uh, the Lord's goodness is before the throne of God above. And in particular, verse 2. And there's been times in my life where I have found myself relying on my own strength. I've been trusting in my own actions, my performance to somehow please God. And in the darkest parts of that, I've tasted the fruit of that self-righteousness, the despair that comes with failure. And as I've sung to myself, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. As I sing that, I turn my eyes away from myself. The eyes of my heart are fixed on Christ. And as I behold the glory of Christ in the gospel and sing, Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free, for God the just is satisfied. To look on him and pardon me. To look on him and pardon me. That beholding leads to tasting. The grace of God comes and lifts the despair of my self-righteousness. And I taste the sweetness of his forgiveness. And that is what we get to do every single day but especially on Sunday. Beholding leads to tasting. It's not enough for us to simply sing songs or preach correct theology without emotional response. That would be intellectualism. That is not tasting the glory of the Lord. If anything, it's tasting of our own pride. But the Lord didn't send Christ to die on the cross so that we might pride ourselves in our accurate theological facts. Christ came that we might taste and see his goodness. And at the same time, the opposite of intellectualism is emotionalism. Feelings that are not grounded in the truth. So it's the idea that, you know, unless we've felt strongly, then we haven't really worshipped the Lord. But Christ didn't resist every temptation known to man and endure agony on the cross so that we might merely experience some strong emotions during the singing part of our service. We must worship him in spirit and in truth. Now notice how Paul brings these two ideas together and holds them in Colossians 3 verse 16. He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. That's, that's accurate theology. That's true. That's things that are right that we must think about. But then he says, goes on to say, singing 
psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Beholding leads to tasting. Or as some have put it, theology leads to doxology. But here lies the problem. Our appetites are not always hungry for God. When we come to church on a Sunday, we'll have either been feasting all week on the goodness of the Lord, which produces an increased appetite for more of him, or we'll have been snacking on other things and we'll find ourselves staring at the coffee. This is how John Piper describes it in his book, Hunger for God. He says, If you don't feel strong desires for the manifestation of the glory of God, it's not because you've drunk deeply and are satisfied. It's because you've nibbled so long at the table of the world. Your soul is stuffed with small things and there's no room for the great. God did not create you for this. So if you want to increase your appetite for the Lord, start tasting of him. See, babies don't, don't start out with steak, do they? They start out with milk and they grow in appetite and capacity to taste more and more. And as we taste the Lord's goodness, we won't find ourselves satisfied too quickly because the Lord's not like the world. He doesn't come to an end. But rather, having tasted of how good he really is, we'll increasingly want more and more of him and only him. So Peter says to us in 1 Peter 2, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Have you tasted that the Lord is good? Do you know experientially his forgiveness and his love? If you have no idea what that tastes like, you've come along this morning, maybe you are interested in what Christianity is all about, a friend has brought you along, and this idea of tasting the Lord's goodness is just some interesting idea, then I want to invite you this morning to come and to taste and see that the Lord is good. He says to you, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Christ died and he rose again that you might know him, that he might open your eyes, the eyes of your heart, to behold his glory and to taste the goodness of a restored relationship with him. That comes about through repentance of sin and faith, looking to him to satisfy you and to behold his glory in the gospel. Beholding the glory of the Lord and tasting of his goodness will invariably lead to a response. And that is our last point this morning, responding. Beholding leads to tasting, which invariably results in a response. So the question then is, how should we respond to the Lord? What is appropriate? You know, at one level, we shouldn't even need to be told how to respond. I mean, if we're truly tasting 
will just naturally respond, right? Like when you taste a delicious meal, you don't have to be told, okay, and now say, mmm, delicious. You just involuntarily do so. You're just like, oh, man, this is so good. Who made this? Oh, this is awesome. Yeah, but the funny thing about eating, and I don't know if you've noticed this, but that the enjoyment of the food is often magnified by our expression of delight in the food. So David says in Psalm 34, verse 3, Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. The Lord doesn't get better when we magnify him. Our enjoyment of him is magnified. That's why I think the Lord then graciously gives us instruction on how we can magnify our enjoyment of him through our physical expression and response to him in corporate worship. He wants us to know how good he really is. He wants us to taste his goodness more and more because it glorifies him when we do. Now, note that these biblical instructions of physical responses to him are not based on culture. They're not based on your personal preference, your style, or your personality because worship is not fundamentally about us. It's about him. And as such, he gets to choose how we worship and respond to him and he knows what will lead us to the greatest joy and delight in him because that's what we were made for. So here's a few examples in Scripture of what our physical responses can be to God as we behold him and taste of his goodness. So the first one, you'll be familiar with this, singing. Psalm 13 verse 6, I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Or the next one, lifting hands. Psalm 63 verse 4, So I will bless you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. And 1 Timothy 2 verse 8 uh, echoes that. and shows how important it is as an expression of unity. And he says, I desire then that in every place the men should, be, men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Standing, Psalm 22, verse 23, You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. Or bowing and kneeling, Psalm 95, verse 6, O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. Or dancing, Psalm 149, verse 3, Let them praise his name with dancing, making melody to him with tambourine and lyre. And then clapping and shouting in Psalm, verse 47, Psalm 47, verse 1, Clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. You know, as you hear these different expressions, how does it make you feel? I'll admit that uh, dancing is not really high on my repertoire of physical responses. Um, And yet there it is, in Scripture, commanded, directed, 
from my Lord as an appropriate response to beholding and tasting his goodness. Thankfully, it doesn't articulate the kind of dancing, so maybe this is going to be okay. (laughs) But I recognize that my resistance, my resistance to just dancing, as I process that and that idea, my resistance and my temptation to just rationalize it away is grounded more in my personal preference and my culture than it is in beholding and tasting the Lord's goodness. So I want to encourage you to consider your own expressiveness on a Sunday morning. Take time to think about whether or not you are outwardly expressive and then have a think through even just these list of things that I've gone through now. You know, this is not an exhaustive list. The Bible is full of both instructions and examples of what it looks like to worship the Lord with our whole being, body and soul. They are connected and we can't separate them. But then let me encourage you then to magnify your enjoyment of the Lord by expressing your response to him physically. As you do, I want to give you three guiding principles quickly to help you uh, think about what you're doing. First, be considerate of others. So when we gather to worship, we do so as a family. Uh, It is not an opportunity for me to satisfy my personal preferences, but it's an opportunity to worship the Lord with my brothers and sisters in Christ. We're exalting his name together. So a few months back, I was delighting in the Lord during one of our songs, and I was just shouting out praises to the Lord during the bridge, and I was proclaiming his greatness. And all these Bible verses were like shooting through my head, and I was just shouting them out. And just, you know, Lord, you are glorious, and you will reign forever. And my heart was, my heart was full. And I was just overwhelmed by the Lord's presence and power work. And afterwards, I was talking to Donnie about it and uh, how I'd just been experiencing the joy of the Lord in that moment. And her response was, yes, you were shouting. It was very distracting. <laughs> I, mean, I, w- I wasn't really being very considerate of the others around me. I, uh, I could possibly have toned it down a little bit. Be considerate of others. But at the same time, don't use that guiding principle as an, as an excuse to not be expressive. So the second then is to encourage one another. Being intentionally reserved does the opposite of encouraging one another. You know, just like hearing someone speak about an amazing cup of coffee makes me want to go and drink a cup of coffee. Sorry, guys, if you're on coffee this morning. Um, you know, I expect you're going to get some more orders now. But just like hearing someone talk about it makes you want to go and get a cup of coffee, hearing my brothers and sisters in Christ proclaiming the excellencies of Christ and delighting in him makes me want to do so the same. So encourage one another. And thirdly, fear the Lord. One of the biggest reasons I think we don't respond physically to the Lord in worship is because we have one eye on his goodness and the other is looking to see what people might be thinking of us. 
We end up being more concerned about how we look while we're worshipping than we are with who we are worshipping. What are you looking at? In essence, we could be fearing people rather than fearing the Lord. But Psalm 34 verse 9, David calls us and says, Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. For those who fear him have no lack. Be considerate of others, encourage one another, and fear the Lord. Set your gaze on him. You know, at the end of the day, the focus just can't be on our outward expressions. We must look back up the sunbeam to the sun. We must behold the Lord gazing upon the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, actively tasting of him again and again. And as we do, responding outwardly for the glory of Christ and the good of others and for our increased enjoyment of him. And the others may also taste and see that the Lord is good with us. How good is our God? Let's pray. Oh, Father, we want to thank you first because it is your grace that we can behold your glory. Lord, neither did we want to nor could we behold your glory unless it was for your sovereign act of kindness in our lives and your mercy poured out on us that you would open the eyes of our hearts, that you would breathe life into us, that we might be moved from death to life and that we might see the light, that we might behold Christ who is the exact representation of his being. You are the radiance of the glory of God, Jesus. Father, we want to thank you that we can do that, not just on a Sunday morning, but every day, every waking moment, you have made that possible. So Lord, I pray that you would help us to behold you increasingly, that we might taste of your goodness so that our appetites for you would increase more and more and more. Lord, that that would be expressed outwardly with joy and delight, that it would magnify our enjoyment of you. Oh, Father, we pray these things for your glory and for our good. Amen. Amen.